This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be talking with a famous chef or author about their favorite ingredient. We'll also be speaking to the producer of that ingredient to talk about why it's so great and why chefs love using them in their kitchens. We're going to talk about scallops today, Andrea. Do you like scallops? I love scallops. Me too. There's no scallop that I don't like. I love the tiny bay scallops from Nantucket and the Peconic Bay in Long Island. And I love the large sea scallops. I think of them as coming from the North Atlantic. I always think of them or have made them for special occasions, kind of like a date night meal, or if you're going to obviously a really nice restaurant, if there's scallops on the menu, I'm probably gonna be ordering it. I I just think that they're a very special food. I mean, one of the things I love about scallops is they are really, to your point, they're very luxurious. Mm -hmm. They speak to some kind of like special evening, but If you go to the fish market and you buy scallops, what could be easier to prepare? Take them out of the package, dry them off, season them with a little salt, a little pepper, put them in a hot pan with either butter or olive oil, put them in two minutes on one side, flip them over a couple minutes on the other side, you're basically done. People may be a little bit frightened of them to cook them, but it's so easy, just like you said. And if you're lucky and you live near a, a great fishmonger, and you know, and or you live in a coastal community where you can get fresh scallops, there's nothing better to me than a raw sea scallop. And it's nothing to be afraid of. I love to take the big ones, slice them in thirds, put a little salt and olive oil. A little acid. It's just amazing how good they are raw. And then there's also the, the bay scallops, a little bit of butter, toss them in a pan just a couple of minutes just to you know, lightly brown them up, eat them straight up or with pasta. You know, I live very close to a great seafood market. Often I'll walk into a regular supermarket that's selling scallops. And there are times when I see them in the in the regular market and they look great. And there have been times when I've seen them and they don't look so great. So wh- what do you look for, Andrea, when you're buying a scallop? You hit the nail on the head. You have to go to a, a fish market or a purveyor that you trust because scallops are very perishable. So you want to make sure that the place that you're going, there is a, a lot of turnover. So what you are getting is fresh, firm, not super glossy. They should not be sitting in any liquid. Should there be any aroma associated with them? No, it should smell like the sea. Barely a scent of the sea. Yes. If there's any fishiness whatsoever, you don't mm-hmm. want them. No and slime. I'll say one of the things, even when I go to a nice fish market, if I have any question whatsoever, I'll ask the fishmonger. A little, have a smell. little smell. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That kind of assures you that you're getting it. If you ever get that like ammoniated kind of fishy smell, just say, you know what, no thank you, or do you have something fresher? That's a telltale sign. Let your nose make that decision. Um, if it smells off, don't buy it. It's important. When you're, you're paying for it. When you're, okay. Yeah, when you're cooking something, particularly like a scallop, you got to make sure you're getting the freshest, best product there is, and you got to ask. This week's episode is with Daniel Balud, Andrea. I have no words for this episode. I just think he is such a legend. To be able to listen to him talking about something he's so passionate about, I can't. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm with you on all of that. He is also just a wonderful guy. You know, if I were to have a chef who has helped me in my career, you know, and as a purveyor, I'm not even saying that I'm not a, I'm not a chef, I'm not a cook. I'm on the other side of the, you know, the kitchen pass. He is such a great guy. He's done so much to help further my career. He's educated me. He's been supportive. He's almost and, like a mentor to you. Yeah, in many ways he is. And also the guys that worked for him over the years, whether it was you know someone like Andrew Carmelini or Chef Alex Lee or any of the guys that really passed through his kitchen, it's always been a place for me that has helped me in, in every way. And I, so I, I cannot wait to go back in 
to restaurant Danielle and speak with him. I wasn't surprised when he decided that he wanted to speak about scallops. Yeah. His signature dish is scallops in a black tie. Yep. It combines the greatest ingredients that there are. Black winter truffles, scallops from Maine, diver scallops or large sea scallops. And puff pastry. What could be more delicious? And I also think that, you know, he obviously, ingredients have to be the top, top quality. So scallops from Maine, where they are the best, I think kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, this is a chef that way before anybody else was really talking about it in the United States, you know, in the early 1980s, he was so focused, hyper-focused on sourcing ingredients making sure he knew where they were coming from, who produced them. Sustainable. Really passionate and seasonal and sustainable, to your point. There's a reason why he is considered among the greatest chefs of all time. It don't matter the chef in the world. You remember a chef for very few recipes that was really iconic, but he may have made thousands of recipes, millions, but at least a few will mark his legacy, I think. And uh, I think the sea scallop black tie was certainly a dish that I created in a very early age of my career, but it became an instant classic and we never ever change the technique or the recipe. On this episode, we're gonna be talking to two different scallop producers. And you may ask yourself why. Well, there's a reason. The first person we're gonna be talking to is Peter Handy of Bristol Seafood. He specializes in fresh scallops from the Gulf of Maine, and these are just seasonal products, sustainably harvested. They're absolutely wonderful. They're only available at a certain time of year. Maine scallops are sea scallops, essentially a North Atlantic scallop, and it's a beautiful, fresh product, right? The water's cold up here. It's a sustainable resource, and it's something with a long tradition in Maine and New England. And then we're also going to talk to Gigi Andrews, of the right scallop. Gigi has a incredible scallop that is sold only by the chef's warehouse. And the nice thing about these is they're available year round. They are flash frozen on board of the ship within eight hours of being caught. In the United States, there's about 340 boats that scallop. And there's only about 10 boats that freeze at sea. You have this year-round consistency of a great scallop called the right scallop available only at the chef's warehouse. This episode is in partnership with the chef's warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media. Before we even start about scallops, first of all, we're on very hallowed ground because where we are today, originally the Mayfair Hotel, yeah. Danielle, you correct me when I'm wrong. This was the site of the original Le Cirque that opened up research mm-hmm. in 1974. Yep. This became Le Cirque restaurant. And in 1986, I became the chef uh, at Le Cirque. Right here. Yeah. Right there in this location, actually, the skybox at Danielle now is perched over where the dishwashing area was and where the pastry is now was the hotline because the hotline was opposite from the dishwasher. I hated that position of the kitchen because as you were doing the pass, the noise of the back was always reverberating on you. And I always felt like, you know, one day this kitchen, I thought maybe we could redo the kitchen of Lucier. It never happened. We never put that million dollar in it. <laughs> so I kind of put my own after when I came back. So to describe to the people listening, mm-hmm. The skybox at Restaurant Danielle is perched above the kitchen. It's Danielle's office. 
It's also the most VIP dining table. It's the smallest dining room in New York City. But we're surrounded by photos of celebrity and royalty. Name some of the people that have sat at this table and had dinner in the kitchen at Danielle. Uh, It's a long list. Many. It's a very long list. And uh, I think I would have to provide you that. Uh, I don't think I make any favorite. Of course, some president uh, stay in the skybox because they made it their briefing room. Obama had fundraising here. In between the main dining room and the private room, he needed a small room to be with his entourage. Yeah. And so he was in the skybox, of course. Many celebrities, but also many people have celebrated very special moments here. And I think that's what uh, make maybe that room spe- so special. It's the smallest dining room in New York City. It can only seat four. <laughs> Amazing. Was the skybox here for Le Cirque at all? No. So this is something no, no, you no, no. no because built? when uh, when I uh, you have to realize then we gutted to the bone the back of the house here. Mm-hmm. I had bulldozer picking up all the rubbles coming from the from the different floors where they were doing demolition of the whole building uh, because the building was under full renovation. In the kitchen here, I took advantage of the high ceiling and I say, you know, okay, maybe the it's gonna be it's gonna be tight, but I'm gonna try to fit a double deck on one side. It worked. <laughs> I can tell been... you, I have a personal memory in this room around 1999. When did you move into this space with yeah. Restaurant Daniel? Yeah, yeah. 90, uh, late 98, December 98, we had our first party. So back then, before the holiday. back then I used to sell truffles and I used to travel around yeah. New York City with a bag of truffles and Daniel was one of my great clients. And usually I would go see his chef de cuisine, Alex Lee, and Alex would do a lot of the negotiating and looking at the truffles. And one day they said, Danielle wants to see you with the truffles. He's here. He wants to pick them out. It was early in the season. So they had me come up here. I was scared. Yeah. I was nervous. I was in my 20s, late 20s. I was shaking in your boots. Oh, this is a long oh, time yeah. ago. We're talking about 20 <laughs> something years ago today. And I came in here and Danielle was picking out the truffles and I was so nervous and excited. It was one of the first times we'd ever met. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much just in that early meeting I know and then and many years later he learned he learned especially that it's very tough to negotiate with the chef <laughs> very tough. because he's gonna push you down yep. to the ground until he gets his price <laughs> I, I remember one time coming in here speaking yeah I learned I got I, the prices of truffles back then if we think about the 1990s and early 2000s a, a pound of white truffles was probably $400, $500. Yeah, or even maybe more maybe at the a beginning, little more. but yeah, 1000 Now you talk about two, $2,000, dollars yeah. a pound. Yeah. But I walked in one day and the prices were very high because of demand, whatever it was. And as soon as I told Alex Lee the price, Alex called Danielle over and told Danielle the price. And Alex and Danielle both told me to get out of this kitchen. <laughs> they don't want to hear those prices. And I put my tail between my legs and I walked out of here scared. I'm telling you, scared. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know whether I wanted to come back the next day or, you know, when they needed truffles. And I came back and I will tell you that as soon as I sold, they they bought truffles. Mm -hmm. And then Alex and Danielle said, are you hungry? Do you want it? I said, yeah, I've been out all day. And they made me a full lunch standing up in the kitchen. Wow. We always enjoy feeding our suppliers. And sometimes with their own ingredients, uh, if was the occasion, yeah. right? I mean, it was always very spontaneous because you never know when they're going to show up. Yeah. So. How do you choose a purveyor? 
I mean, I, I know they're important to you and you have so many relationships, but, you know, what is important to you? What do you look for? Well, you know, when you come for the first time and you don't have an introduction or if you don't know anyone in the restaurant that can create the trust, we have to build the trust. Yep. And the trust comes from the quality of the ingredient, the commitment of the person, the passion of the person, the knowledge, having someone who will be behind you all the time, anytime. We trust John because even if he was not an expert in everything, he cared to make sure that things were right. You were taken care of. Oh yeah, taken care of and, and, and also, you know, go the extra miles. Crisscross the country to try to find us something we didn't have yet or we never saw here. And I think that because, you know, everybody can sell certain things, they each have their supplies or their source are competitive and they're compatible or comparable. Yeah. A good supplier is someone who surprised you once in a while with something that really nailed it because they got that particular farmer, that particular fisherman, that particular grower that really do something special for them. I mean, I could tell you, and I'm looking here at the book, Cooking with Daniel Balut. <laughs> this book came out in 1993. I remember being, my sister lived in Los Angeles. Yeah. I remember walking through Barnes and Noble and I saw this book and I knew I'd heard of Danielle from Le Cirque back then, but I was still in my very young 20s. And I got a copy of that book and it became sort of a Bible to me of, because it really talked, it was way ahead of its time. It talks yeah. about seasonality and cooking with ingredients in season. Where the ingredient come where from. Where they came yeah. from. I'm going to tell you, in the appendix of that book, I saw where Danielle, what his trusted truffle supplier was, and that is probably the reason I ended up getting into the truffle business, to be very honest with you. From that book? From that book. And I remember, so that's why when I first met Danielle, it was like, wow. But the thing that is in that book that most got to me, because I had already been into truffles. I had had an experience in college and I ate truffles for the first time and I had this whole epiphany. I opened that book and I was looking at it last night. I think it's at page 163. My he book called is, me at 9.30 last night to tell crumpled. me about this. He's got a black tie. Yes. He, there it is. He knows the page number <laughs> yep. too. And I saw this picture of this dish and was like, holy shit. It was so moving to me to see it. And it's stunning. I mean, where did you, you created well, this So that dish, dish was created at Le Cirque. And uh, interesting, you know, when you, uh, before you really started to become a truffle suppliers, there weren't so many truffle suppliers in America. It was not easy to get truffles, so you had to count on your friends from Europe coming to New York and smuggle truffle for you. And that's what Sergio Maccioni was doing because he was from Italy. He was from Tuscany, Sergio, the owner of Le Cirque. Of course, he had a lot of friends, either in the wine business, in the food business, in, or even in the fashion or in the car business, whatever. And the Mayfair Hotel was the residence of all the Italians coming to New York because the manager of the hotel, the, the Mayfair regent at the time, was an Italian gentleman, and Sergio, at the restaurant, was Italian as well. So that was headquarters here for the Italian. And of course, there was always somebody flying to New York and will bring back truffle. And I remember the excitement of knowing that someone was going to smuggle us truffle. At the end of the day, we'll start service with this fresh white truffle from Italy. Pretty quickly, then, I think the first company you worked for was Urbani, yep. when really we started to have real truffle suppliers. That's amazing. So the ingredient we're talking about today 
is scallops. Yeah, and but the, with truffle. With truffles, <laughs> Zoe's better. Yep. What is it about scallops? What is it about that dish, the the sea scallop in a black tie? How did you even think of making that? As a new chef, I was kind of uh, at the Cirque. I, I didn't want to scratch everything they did, but I needed to revamp and re- fire new ideas and, and really to bring a youth to the, the menu, the place, but also new energy and new idea. And New Year's Eve, 1986, 87, uh, 1987, I needed to do my first New Year's Eve menu at Le Cirque. I had this idea of doing a dish with the sea scallop and the black truffle because they they both come very strong in season, uh, diverse scallops, and the black truffle when they de- uh, late December and is the peak. The American sea scallop compared to the European, they're a little bit more sweet, a little bit more sticky when you slice them. And you could almost slice a whole scallop and put it back together and it will still glue each other slice. It first started with the idea of slicing scallops and slice of truffle in between and just bake it slowly together in a little bit of uh, vermouth and a little bit of truffle juice and butter and just like braise them like this. That was delicious. It was just two ingredients, truffle and scallop and seasoning. And of course, a nice truffle sauce around. And then from that came the puff pastry because we, I wanted to glam it up a little bit. And I think a crust of puff pastry was really what made the dish iconic. Because you and don't I know co- what's inside until yeah. you slice into it. And I call it sea scallop black tie just because New Year's Eve black tie, the sea scallop black and white. It's almost like a buff en croute or a beef wellington the so, way it's wrapped. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I was talking about iconic recipe. It don't matter the chef in the world. You remember a chef for very few recipes that was really iconic, but he may have made thousands of recipes, million, but at least a few will mark his legacy, I think. And uh, I think the sea scallop black tie was certainly a dish that I created in a very early age of my career, but it became an instant classic. And we never ever changed the technique or the recipe because it was just perfected. And I think that's what happened with a recipe that we feel has found its balance and it also its popularity, its fame, I will say. Uh, Is it still on the winter menus or do people, yeah, I'm sure no. people ask for it all the time. No, you can have it on special order or you can have it for New Year's Eve here at Danielle or one of my restaurants because we always associate now New Year's Eve celebration with also the black tie somewhere in the menu. That dish, even if we don't do it so often, I think there is. it's always a pleasure to go back and do it again and teach it to the new generation. Um, Just like nostalgia in it. Like yeah. every time you make it, do you I mean, like bring, does it bring back memories? The dish is 35 years old and still young as yesterday. So yeah. <laughs> I love it. Talking about scallops and talking about seafood from Maine, particularly scallops, obviously, because mm-hmm. that's the ingredient today. What is it about Maine and the seafood from Maine and the shellfish from Maine. I know you've had a long relationship with Rod Mitchell, who is a great seafood purveyor based in Portland, Maine. How does the seafood of Maine, you mentioned you know, comparing it to France and some other great places, why is Maine so good for seafood? What's interesting is I have a restaurant in, Mon- in Montreal now for a while, more than 10 years. The coast of Maine, it's a little bit like Brittany to me, where in France, where we have also amazing collection of seafood there because there's there's rocks lobsters and, and, yeah. yeah exactly and now 
I see that Maine carry on all the way to Gaspésie, and our North Atlantic coast is one of the finest. Super the cold water, absolutely clean water, and that is north of Boston all the way to Greenland. <laughs> yes, so yeah, Greenland all the way up. No, Nova Scotia, I would say. The lobster we get in Maine, and of course the lobster you get in Nova Scotia, there is maybe a slight difference in texture, but they're the same lobster, except the water is slightly different as well. And I heard that lobster in Nova Scotia tastes even greater than the one you can get. Uh, I feel the there. same way about oysters. The mm-hmm. oysters that come from a little... F- I, I love oysters from starting in Massachusetts and mm-hmm. going up. Yeah. But these oysters that you get from Prince Edward Island and exactly. really deep, cold, cold water to it's me... It's like the calamari in Point Judith, Rhode Island. That's the best in the you know that you're ever going to get. And the waters there are so cold. That. Yeah. So yeah, the squid there. It's the best. Happy squid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So scallops, black tie, it's the signature dish. There's another recipe in your cookbook, which for me, the one, I think one of the nice things about scallops for a home cook is that they're very easy yeah. and quick to prepare. Not too complicated. Very much. Very much. And one of my, sign- my like signature <laughs> that I took from Danielle <laughs> was a dish with mashed potatoes and a red onion cooked down like caramelized yeah. red onion with Mama balsamic yeah. vinaigrette. Mm-hmm. Crushed potatoes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very simple. Simple, simple. So scallops, raw, cooked, you can do any, they're very versatile. Of course, and and uh, you can grill them, you can roast them, you can steam them, you can pickle them. I mean, or at least, uh, you know, when they are raw and do a ceviche with it, carpaccio also. I think what the beauty of scallop is, like I was mentioning, the, the firmness, the sweetness, delicate, flavor of seafood that either raw or cooked, it's delicate. Even children love it, mm-hmm. which sometimes they can be turned off by uh, seafood flavor. And the American scallop are different. The shell is different. The European scallop, actually the shell is scallop versus the American, which is more even. The texture is a little different. I went to Maine once. It was minus 10 degrees. We went on the boat. And at the time, there was uh, the chef Jean-Louis Paladin who was with us, and Gunther Seeger and Rod Mitchell and I, and we went on the boat with the diver in middle of this freezing winter because uh, the scallop can be dragged by boat, but at a certain time. And then to protect nature and all that, you would have to dive to go and pick up the scallop. So that really limit the harvest. The diver, you know, had a wetsuit. He put some hot water in his hood to make sure he stay warm. Wow. And then he dive and... 10 minutes later, came up with a bag, throw that on the boat, and they were all the live scallops. Then he dived back again, come back with another of those uh, fishing bags. Now it's sea ocean. So we had, a, we had a feast of sea ocean and scallop on the boat. Sounds amazing. <laughs> Incredible. And that's crazy. where that the expression main diver scallop, if people don't know, they're actually Somebody, diving. Some person oh, yeah. Yeah. who's very hardy, because I wouldn't get in that water, is going down, diving down, and bringing those scallops up. And so, you know, if you want to know where your food comes from, it's incredible to think that they're hand harvested like that. Uh, completely. And uh, can't go too deep either. So they may go like 30 feet, maybe. It's a little dark down there. Yeah. <laughs> they're so good. And yeah. they're so fast, those speakers. Of course, they don't harvest tons they just get what they can yeah and uh but very special i've actually gone snorkeling for bay scallops in nantucket oh very not, not a lot of water five yeah. ten feet of water yeah 
and you kind of snorkel around and you when you see them on the bottom you put them in your bag and you come up and get a breath and go down mm -hmm. but we call them candy yes because as soon as we get to shore we'll start shucking a few of them and you pop so them good. in your mouth they're so sweet and so amazing so good. yeah and uh that's another scallop uh, the bay scallops of Maine or the Peconic Bay in Absolutely. Long Island. And they're going to start very soon. I think usually we get um, the season start uh, sometime in spring yeah. or late spring. How do you cook bay scallops? Are there specific well, it's recipes? Good. Or? It's good to dredge them uh, on a little bit of flour or coating, and then you can saute them and do... I mean, of course, there'll be all kind of spring vegetable that can go with morel, with ramps, with asparagus, with uh, but many other ways of accommodating that. And of course, raw is beautiful too. So you serve the raw of the scallop? Oh, raw. I don't know if you're allowed to. Are you allowed? Shit. No. In America, we don't serve the raw. But okay. in Europe, yes, we do. What is, so I've that's why, again, different breed. I have had it in Europe. Orange color, mm -hmm. raw. I've delicious. seen it like in pictures, but I've mm -hmm. never tried yeah. it. It's firmer. It's uh, because it's a raw, so it, it once it's cooked, mm -hmm. it's much firmer than okay. uh, the scallop itself. I don't think gastronomically it is not the finest part of the scallop, but it definitely has its place, uh, especially in European scallops, the one you get from England and France and the, the sort of the North Sea. Yeah, I think when you, if you're in Europe and you're at a seafood market, this, you will see the scallops in their shell mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the U.S., it's very rare if you do see a scallop in the shell. Usually they've already been shucked and cleaned. Mm -hmm. Not but necessarily we, a sign of not a good quality, but they're no. already cleaned. We, we get them live here. And so, of course, we chuck them, clean them quickly. An hour later, two hours later, when you slice your scallops, they're still pulsating, and pulsating up, inside yeah. and uh, feeling. And that's the best. I mean, you really know yeah. how fresh your scallop is for sure. They're so special. Like as we're talking about it, I just like I think the whole experience, like someone having to dive to get it, you have to shuck it. It's like, you know, the pearl inside of like an oyster. That to yes. me is kind mm -hmm. of like a scallop. Scallop, you can be very simple and rustic with it, or you can elevate it like the black tie is, I think, a total elevation of a, a preparation. I think chefs in general love to work with scallop. It's an ingredient that is very refined and very flexible in a way of accommodating with many different recipes. And even if you're an Indian chef, you can enjoy cooking with scallops. If you're an Asian chef, if you are an American, South American, I mean, I think every cuisine can find its expression uh, with scallops. Absolutely. Very true. I even think uh, uh, risotto with scallops or pasta yeah. with scallops yeah. for Italian mm -hmm. cooking. I'm Chef Daniel Boulou, and you're listening to Ingredient Insider. So one of the questions we were talking yesterday at length, you know, preparing, I think our biggest thing, you know, obviously you have, you were trained in France. What was the pull to come to the United States? Why did you come to New York? Oh, uh, as a very young age, when I started to cook in France, first I met chef from all over the world. In the 70s, we had a lot of Japanese chefs working in the kitchen of France, everywhere. There was not a single kitchen without two or three Japanese cooks. So already you had this kind of cultural relation. Mm -hmm. Scandinavian chef, British chef, some American chef, South American chef. One chef told me, you choose a wonderful profession because you will be able to travel the world and always find a job anywhere you will be. You can always cook. I had a chance to travel in Denmark, but the chef I was working for, they were mostly three star chefs. Michel Guerra, Roger Verger, Georges Blanc. 
Bocuse, and they all were traveling the world all the time. And I was so envious and jealous that I was too young. I was not sous chef yet. I was not the one who was on the ride with them to go to America, South America, Japan. One day I wanted to make sure I had my share of travel. This opportunity, first I lived in Denmark for two and a half years with a stint back in France and come back and came back. And that was really interesting. And I was kind of getting fluent in English. And so when I had this opportunity to come to Washington, D.C. and be a private chef, I had a visa. I wasn't sort of jumping into a restaurant and not knowing where I was going. I knew the job was going to be easy for me. It was a good introduction to come to visit this country. I did that for two years and then came to New York during that time. I really felt New York City is the city to cook in. And I wanted to really, really work in New York. And I found a job at the Westbury Hotel and then the Plaza Atene as a sous chef, then as chef de cuisine at the Plaza Atene, then came to Le Cire. And it took me 10 years to convince an investor to back me up for my restaurant. So that was 30 years ago. That's incredible. And you talk about the Westbury Hotel back then. You cooked side by side. Correct me if I'm wrong. You had Thomas Keller there. Yeah. A young, these are young. Mm-hmm. Alfred Portal. Young Alfred Portal. Bill Yosses. Bill Yosses. Uh, Frank Crispo. Frank Cri- Ralph Scamardella. Sure, Ralph. Yeah. Uh, who is the. Uh, yeah, Tao Group. Tao now. Group. Yeah. Uh, and, and many, David Chak. And- A lot of people who went places after that. I know, and and uh, that was the early 80s. I've been in the same zip code mm-hmm. since I arrived in New York City. I've never moved. You never didn't left. have to move too far. Now, how did you connect with Sirio to come to Le Cirque? What was that like? Uh, because you see that picture up in the skybox? Mm-hmm. It's the 60th birthday of Paul Bocuse. And I was the chef at the Plaza Athénée on the left, top uh-huh. left. Mm-hmm. Jacques Maximin is next to me, Roger Verger, uh, the chef of Paul Bocuse in France, Jaloux, and Alain Chapelle. Uh-huh. And Paul was holding his cake, and I made this incredible birthday party. And after that birthday party, they came to Le Cirque for dinner, and I was invited to come to Le Cirque. Everybody was saying how much they loved Sirio, but they didn't like the food. Paul Bocuse convinced Sirio, the owner of Le Cirque, to say, you know, if you ever look for a young chef, because your chef might be leaving at the time he was Alain Sayak, he was planning to leave Alain. And he said, if you look for a young chef, you should tap Daniel next door. Oh, so Paul Bocuse ah. brokered the deal, so to speak. For you. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> because I knew Paul since the age of 14. He has always followed me in my career, doing stage there at this restaurant. And so he has always been a father figure uh, to me. And uh, we made the deal. One of the things, we don't have enough time to talk about it today, but I am very big on the, I don't know if you want to call it the family tree or the lineage of great chefs in the Mm -hmm. world. We talk about this a lot. Daniel has a direct connection to Paul Bocuse. You mentioned Georges Blanc and Roger Verger and uh, Michel Girard. These guys who can take another step back in their lineage to it's a very few chefs, or you mentioned Alan Chappelle as well. Very few chefs you get to, it's a very small world when you get there and as the branches or the roots of that tree go down. To me, one of the greatest things that Danielle has ever done, besides the great food, is you've been a mentor Mm -hmm. to so many amazing 
successful and now famous chefs that worked for you either at Le Cirque or here. Of course. You know, friends of ours like Andrew Carmelini or Alex of Lee course. or the Carbone guys. Carbone and Torizzi. Yeah. And, uh, it's, and, it's amazing. And, and so many, uh, I mean, Riyadh and Lee here in New York. Who but, started uh, Balthazar and French. Absolutely. And, uh, it, the list goes on and on and, and on. And uh, Alessandra Guanachelli. <laughs> yeah. But when I arrive at Le Cirque, the first two chefs who really marked me by their energy, their passion, their, because they were sous chef for Chef Alain Sayac, it was Jeffrey Zakarian and Michael Lomonico, who was both in the kitchen at that time. I really enjoyed them, but you know they were loyal to Alain, and so they follow him. I think he went to the 21 Club, then the Plaza Hotel, and they follow him there. The months we worked together, I think, was very exciting because... For me, I was, it was the first time I was really stepping into this sort of old French, very New York type of restaurant. And it's like jumping on a train 150 miles an hour because the, the restaurant was busy, packed lunch and dinner. And you jump into this and you have to try to figure it out, how to cope with it and how to make change while you are running. So Andrew, Andrew what year were you born? 1985. Okay, 1985. So Daniel was here in 1986. Yeah, yeah, I was one. It's hard it's hard to describe to anyone who wasn't here during those years. When Danielle talks about busy, the street outside here on East 65th Street when it was Le Cirque or Danielle for that matter, in the 80s and 90s. It was gridlock. It was gridlock. There was there, like a restaurant renaissance going on during that time in New York City. There were that Lincoln, doesn't exist, I don't think, anymore. Lincoln Town Cars. Yes. That, to Danielle's point, you couldn't drive past mm-hmm. this restaurant. To begin with, the limousine were too big. Yeah. You know, those yeah. cars were those so big. Those stretch limos back then. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and people would pile in here. And royalty and society and and. Every walk of life, they were definitely the people who will come for occasion, but there will be a lot of regulars. It was a club. It was really a club. And Sirio was really a master managing that dining room. Uh, he was world famous for that. Another amazing night in my life, actually, was I popped in here very quickly oh, yeah. for a drink after work one day. And Danielle saw me and he said, come on, we got to go. Sirio's doing something over at Le Cirque. And we got in my car and we drove over to Le Cirque at their location. And I had an opportunity to sit with Danielle and Sirio and my friend Gaylene. We got to listen to stories. And Danielle told me a story of how Sirio used to keep a Rolodex with his client's phone numbers. It was not a Rolodex. It was, it a... was a rubber band with okay. <laughs> a stack of small cards, scorecards. Okay. And on that was a name and a phone number. That's all he had. And, and, and he had a stack of like, I don't know, four-inch stick rubber band stack. And, and these are the that, VIP That was clients. his life in his pocket all the time. <laughs> and he would call these people he will call and say, regularly, hey, we got white boom. truffles in. Come in for dinner tonight, Absolutely. right? That kind of stuff. You were telling me he would call like Joan Rivers and... I mean, at the time, you didn't have Instagram or do marketing on Facebook or whatever. Mm-hmm. You had to reach out yeah. in order to know if people were in town and if they could come. It's incredible. Yeah. The story. We could talk for hours about But I would like to days. say that I was marked by that legacy of restaurants like Le Cirque, and I really enjoyed my time at Le Cirque. It was not for every chef. I mean, you know, some chef could not stand that kind of heat, but I didn't mind to take the heat. 
Today, I created a new restaurant called Le Pavillon, and that was really in homage to this legacy of French restaurant that was in New York City in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even early 40s, down to the late 80s, where they were all named Le ou La, something. I worked at La Côte Basque, I worked at Le Cirque. I heard so many stories about all the other French restaurants in New York. At the time, there weren't any Korean great chef, there weren't any uh, Mexican great chef, there weren't any chef from the world. Yeah, the, the Italians were pretty prominent, but not in the fine dining label. They were more- Like a red to- sauce. Yeah, Tony May. Tony May was really the one who started to bring real Italian talent uh, to New York and refine. I love the history of dining in New York. I mean, when you hear the stories of when Four Seasons restaurant opened in the 50s and that era of Joe Baum, Tom Margetai and Paul Covey, I mean, they were fine. One of the finest restaurateurs in the world. And I think Danny Meyer would have not become Danny if he didn't come to New York and wasn't really inspired by those legends. Yeah, it's incredible. Where do you see New York in the next 10, 20 years? What do you think the next is going to keep giving? Is going to keep bringing, is going to keep nurturing talent, bringing new things. And New York loves its classic. We have seen that in the last two decades, bringing back or protecting classic. And I think that's very important as well. And I hope that New York will keep bring both innovation and tradition because that's what New York love is to be in the forefront and to also carry well the legacy. I like that. Yeah, brilliant. Well said. Well, this has been an honor. I'm so excited to be back in the skybox. It's been a long time since I've been up here. Yes. Thank you, you have so much. You to come much. and dine now. Oh my gosh. Yes, we're coming thank back you. we're coming back for the sea scallops and black tie. Yes. Voila. This episode is sponsored by the Right Scallop. Truly the best scallop you can buy at the chef's warehouse. All right, very excited and honored to have Peter Handy with us from Bristol Seafood joining us from Portland, Maine. We're really excited to be talking all about scallops and- From Maine. From Maine specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about the scallops that Bristol Seafood is procuring? Maybe a little bit of the history about the company? Bristol's been around for 30 years, started in 1992. We're right on the waterfront in the old port in Portland, Maine. And so the the name of where we are is actually called the Portland Fish Pier. Scallops are a big part of the Gulf of Maine fishery and of the overall Maine fishery. And Bristol's been a part of that in terms of, you know, purchasing and distributing Gulf of Maine scallops for decades. What's so special about scallops from Maine? Are we talking about bay scallops or diver scallops or the sea scallops? It's a great question. So Maine scallops are sea scallops, and it's essentially a North Atlantic scallop. Placopectin megalanticus is the Latin name, and it's a beautiful, fresh product, right? The water's cold up here. It's a sustainable resource, and it's something with a long tradition in Maine and New England. And it's, it's something we're proud to be a part of. How do you fish for scallops in the Gulf of Maine? And they are seasonal, right? Yeah. So the, it's interesting. Part of the Gulf of Maine fishery is seasonal and part of it's more year round. The near shore fishery with smaller boats 
is seasonal and the further offshore fishery with larger boats is more year round. The close to shore is more in the winter and the more offshore is more in the summer. How are scallops graded as far as, is it all done by size? Is it, is it done by weight? It's really done by count. So it's, it's funny, you'll hear people toss around the phrase U10, and a lot of people don't know what that means. And what it means is under 10 scallops per pound, or a 10 to 20 count scallop means that if you count out a pound of them, it'll be between 10 and 20, all the way down to 20, 30s. And those are the common sizes that we see in the Gulf of Maine. So the smaller the number, the bigger the scallop. Yep. And the bigger the number, the smaller the scallop. It's the same. It's like similar with shrimp. Yeah. So like 1620s and 2125s. Got it. So a U10 means there's about 10 scallops in a pound and Mm -hmm. a U20 means there's about 20 smaller scallops in a pound. Peter, I've seen scallops have different colors. Some of them are kind of more like an orangey pink and some of them are really white. Does that change the flavor? What is What kind of causes that color change? So it's caused by what the scallop's eating and it also is caused by its reproductive cycle. So it's the interaction of those two things. A lot of people say they taste different. I've closed my eyes and eaten scallops all different colors. I can't tell the difference, but there is something neat about seeing an orange scallop. I think it's kind of fun. Let's talk a little bit about the sustainability of the fishery up there in the Gulf of Maine. Are they able to cultivate scallop? Yeah, so the scallops up here are wild caught, right? There there are folks who are experimenting with farming scallops up here, and some of them are doing it at small scale. When you hear about a Maine scallop or a Gulf of Maine scallop, the vast majority of that is wild harvest. And that area has been certified sustainable by the Marine Stewardship Council for years. The MSC talks about the scallop fishery in the United States as being one of its real success stories. It's been sustainable. There's been a gradual increase in catch over the last several years and the biomass has grown. You know, in recent years, we've seen it come down a little bit in terms of what the quota has been. But by and large, if you look at the long-term trend, it's been able to increase while the biomass increases and all of us to eat them in a sustainable way. How many of the scallops that are, are procured or, or foraged, how many of them come from people literally going down and diving for them versus you know, boats with nets? The dive part of the market is extremely small. I would guess that the total catch of diver scallops in Maine probably doesn't exceed 10,000 pounds. Wow, right? that is small. The way the vast majority of these scallops are harvested is with a dragger. A boat goes, it drags for scallops, it brings the net onto the back of the boat that has the scallops in it. They're shucked at sea, meaning that shell opens and the meat's cut out and held in a cheesecloth bag. Why do you think that people would request a diver scallop versus, you know, one that is, you know, pulled from the sea? It's a thing that people like to talk about. And so some people think that a scallop, that the full name for what a scallop is, is a diver scallop. And they don't recognize that that's kind of a very particular catch method. Are scallops a healthy food? Absolutely. Yeah. Very rich in protein, very healthy food to eat, very lean. Awesome. You know what they say, Andrea, about Maine? They say the way life should be. There you go. That's great. Maybe Maine scallops are the way seafood should be. Absolutely. Well, Peter, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today all about scallops. I now want to go poach one for dinner. And we really appreciate your partnership, uh, The Chef's Warehouse. We love to have Maine Sea Scallops available to all of our customers. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Very honored to have Gigi Andrews on the line with us from The Right Scallop, Andrea. 
She's based in Richmond, Virginia. You know, Andrea, that the right scallop is the scallop at the chef's warehouse. It's our private label. Gigi, could you tell us a little bit about the right scallop? I sure can. It is the best scallop on the planet. We harvest the right scallop in the northern Atlantic, so it's a wild caught USA product. The exciting part about the right scallop is this is a scallop that is actually frozen right on the vessel. So it's a frozen at sea scallop. In the United States, there's about 340 boats that scallop. And there's only about 10 boats that freeze at sea. That's amazing. And that's important because scallops are highly perishable. They've got a very short shelf life. Isn't that correct? That is correct. That's why freezing it at sea, it's the most amazing thing. I've been selling the product for about 20 years. But what we do is we actually freeze it about eight hours out of the water. So we're getting those wonderful scallops out of the water. We're shucking them by hand, and then we're packing them with love, and we pack them in five-pound blocks and then put them into a plate freezer. So there are absolutely no chemicals on the boats. They are only rinsed in seawater, and then we hand pack them in five-pound blocks. And so when you thaw them, you get an eight-hour scallop flavor. Some customers call it like cotton candy. Some of the scallopers say it's the sweetest scallop available. Yeah, I've bought these scallops plenty of times for use in my home. And obviously, we have hundreds and hundreds of clients of the Chef's Warehouse. And we're talking about the best of the best restaurants um, around the country and, and the top chefs of, of the United States that swear by these scallops. I absolutely love them. And the fact is, it's a completely clean product because there's a lot of adulteration from what I've learned in the scallop industry where they're pumped up with uh, certain types of chemicals to preserve them and, and, and make them retain water. That is why the right scallop is the best scallop any chef can buy. Number one, because it's so consistent. We've, our captains have been doing this for about 40 years. They used to even freeze up in Alaska and then we brought the boats back. So right now it's all coming out of the, the Atlantic. But why it's so consistent, again, is the processes. They just come out of the water. They're shucked. They're rinsed in seawater and then hand packed. When you compare them to fresh scallops, fresh scallops are actually on the boat in bags for seven to 10 days before they even hit the, the plant. And then by the time they're trucked or flown around the country, the restaurant's really getting a 14-day-old scallop. When you compare 10 to 14 days out of the ocean, the scallops can pick up water and many of the processors also add chemicals in those fresh scallops before they get to your table. So this on the box, you will see the only ingredient is scallops. When you thaw the right scallop, you've got that eight-hour flavor. In addition, you've got a seven-to-day shelf life in your cooler. I think it's so important for our listeners to hear exactly what you just said, Gigi, because I think there is a negative kind of connotation to frozen seafood. A lot of chefs, they don't want to buy frozen. This frozen product is actually fresher than um, most of the you know fresh scallops out there. What I think a lot of people are under the assumption that their seafood is fresh mm -hmm. and that it was on a boat and it was caught fresh 
and then it came to the market fresh or came to their purveyor fresh, a lot of those products were frozen and not on board, but frozen at somewhere along the line of the, the process and then were defrosted. Well, they, they absolutely have the most perfect name. There is nothing that is not right about the right scallop. They are not wrong, and we feel incredibly lucky to be distributing these amazing, amazing scallops. Thank you so much, Gigi. What a great partner of the Chef's Warehouse. Thank you for supporting our Wild Caught USA scallops. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Like what you hear, write us a review and subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders or Twitter at Where Chefs Talk. All the products we talked about on this episode can be purchased at chefswarehouse.com.